and wait until the, the drug took effect before we would undertake the slaying. Yes, it was very important to him that these people uh, not be conscious, that, that they not uh, be tortured in any way. He, he, that he repeated many, many times. And then he had the equipment available uh, to, to destroy the bodies. To, oh, became... yes, this had become a, a sick ritual. He would stand naked in the bathroom and so on. This was all something that just got repeated over and over again in a very ritual. Did you ask him why he would stand naked? Um, again, I, I'm trying to sort out, you know, what came exactly from uh, what I asked and so on. What I want him aware of, if, if, if that's acceptable, is that he denied being sexually aroused because I was interested in that issue. He was saying that he didn't want to get blood on, on his clothes um, so that people would notice. I don't remember for sure if he told me or if I got that in other ways, but that's my understanding of what was going on. And this was his way of disposing bodies. He didn't have a car, did he? Uh, no, sir, he did not. He couldn't take the body out five miles out of town and get rid of it, could he? He certainly couldn't have driven in a car. He didn't have a car. And he couldn't have started dropping the bodies in the alley behind the house. The police said two or three bodies in the alley. Uh, they'd be saying, we've got a killer here right in this neighborhood, and that would have drawn uh, intense suspicion on the immediate area. Is that true? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Again, I think you know he was also saving parts and was a, a ritualistic thing, but I don't want to debate that with you. I, I agree with what you're saying. And the cutting up of the bodies was his disposal method, not having a car, not wishing to leave them outside the back door. He had to dispose of the bodies. And indeed, in discussion with you, he described that as part of the disposal uh, effort. Is that correct? That's correct. And that's why he got the barrel to acidify the larger bones so they would be mushy could put them in a bag or flush them down the toilet or put them in a bag and dump them in the dumpster as he did with a number of the bodies. Is that correct? Yes. Again, he had often done other things uh, with them that I, I don't want to go into detail, but, but certainly the part of uh, being able to dispose them in that fashion and doing it repeatedly in that same way over and over and over again, that's absolutely correct. Did you compare the bot, the particular, that were in the, the particular barrel in terms to see whether it was the basically the bodies of the last... Uh, four persons or whether he had kept uh, he kept the skull certainly but in terms of the barrel the persons in the barrel well actually the last four people is that correct that he had that he had uh, uh, that he had slain yeah again that wasn't terribly critical to the conclusions I was trying to uh, uh, decide about but but in reading all the reports and so on I become aware of who, who was in the barrel and, and so on right. and did you come and that's true of the heads that were had not been defleshed that was also true. It was the last four, four people that he had slain. Is that correct? Um, again, I'm going by memory, but I, I'm sure you're being accurate, and I'm certain that must be true. What I'm saying is that some of that was, he was saying, he's given testimony, that the in terms of getting tired, not taking any particular pleasure in getting rid of those bodies, that it was taking time, uh, and that's uh, uh, that was part of his disposal program. The point I'm trying to make, doctor, is that he didn't have a car to drop the body five miles away, he couldn't drag them down the street, and he chose to get rid of them by dismembering them, defleshing them, and getting rid of it in that fashion. Is that true? Yeah, there, just so you know, you explained your thing. I, I just hesitate a bit, and again, I, I'm not trying to learn here everything I might want to learn if I'm going to you know, publish a paper on necrophilia. And I, I have some suspicions, therefore, that this ritual of spending hours over and over and doing it the same and, and doing it in this bizarre way may not have been... Uh, only for purpose of getting rid of the body, but maybe tied in his disease. But I didn't go into that because it's not important in terms of these issues. You're describing it as a ritual. Was he doing? Well, he's standing naked. The body's there. He's following in a very set fashion. He's got it almost stereotyped each time. So it, it's ritualistic in the same that it's repeated did... stereotype behavior. He stands naked. If you're going to cut up bodies to get rid of them, and you decide you don't want blood on your clothes. You take off your clothes and you cut up the bodies, don't you? Okay, yes, and again, I, please, I don't want to be argumentative. Let me just be clear. As a psychiatrist, because I'm examining him that way, I'm wondering whether, in addition to get rid of him to dispose of the body, it might be tied in somewhat to his disease. It wasn't, given all that I've already seen, and, and I was clear on the diagnosis and clear on my findings, necessary to pursue it. I'm not trying to take away from you that he was disposing them, absolutely. But I'm trying to be candid that as a psychiatrist seeing this, I certainly am also going to wonder whether there's something more to it as well. That's all I'm did, trying to say. Did he tell you that he conducted rituals during the disposition of these bodies? No, no sir, he did not, and I don't did, want to miss Did it. he, in fact, deny that, that he engaged in any rituals? Well, he didn't deny that he engaged in rituals, but as I said, I, as a psychiatrist, wondered about that as being ritualistic. I'm not saying he said it, and I'm not taking for a minute away that he was also 
regardless of whether it was a ritual, trying to dispose of these. He didn't want to get caught, and this was a way of trying to be sure he, he wouldn't get caught. Did you flatly ask him, Mr. Dahmer, did you engage in any ritualistic activities there in the apartment? No, sir. As I said, I was trying to share with you what I was thinking, and I'm not trying to deflect it, but I did not ask him that, and I'm not saying it was that. I was just trying to be complete in my response. Do many times persons with a strong paraphilic grip involve themselves in, in ritual as part of killing? Oh, gosh, ritual as part of killing. I mean, certainly um, there are ritualistic killings. Um, so that is out there in the literature, perhaps one of the reasons I'm thinking about it. But I'm trying very hard not to disagree with you, because I do agree with you that one of the things he was trying very hard to do was not to get caught. I'm not trying, I don't want to take that away, because I agree with you on that. But in my terms is this, in terms of, of absolutely each time doing the killing the same way, we know he didn't do that, did he? No, there were, there were variations in, in how he went about that. And many ritual, many paraphilically committed people in violent, engaging in violence will repeat in an exact ritualistic way, will they not, how they kill the person? Well, they might do it exactly. I, I wouldn't go along with you that this wasn't the repetition of the same theme over and over and over again. That was certainly there, of having them alive, having sex with them, having them in a transition state, having them dead. So the, the theme was very ritualistic, but I do want to agree with you that the specific details varied somewhat one from the other. Sometimes the hand, sometimes he used a strap, one time he used a knife, a number of times he said he didn't want to kill them at all, that they died from drilling. Absolutely, and we dis discussed that and I agreed with you on that. And you have testified on occasion that, uh, in particularly in the rape case, that a, particularly that, that a, how a man, uh, I'm thinking particularly of the Kirk case, how a man uh, repeats a, a ritualistic in a grip, will repeat it in exactly the same way, say the same words, go through the same act, want the same if it's requiring the woman to perform fellatio, do it in the same fashion, humiliate with the same words. We do not see that exact replication, death after death, with Mr. Dahmer, do we? Well, again, people may not know, Mr. Kirk was a, another case I testified in. There were some similarities and major differences. Certainly, uh, Mr. Kirk had nothing to do with necrophilia. Um, but um, in terms of, you laid some import, did you not, on that the, that the, that the modus operandi was exactly the same, even words involved, procedures involved? I think, and again, I hadn't expected to talk about the Kirk case, but I, it was probably a little closer in terms of concrete repetitiveness in the Kirk case than here. I, I think that's correct. In terms of, I want to call your attention to after the Hicks slain. He described what he did. Eventually, he dismembered, put them in a garbage bag, and undertook to drive to the, uh, apparently a dump in the area. He was stopped by police. Yes, you he was that? given a ticket, uh, at first irony, they, for did crossing the Did they at first think he was driving while intoxicated? Yeah, he was uh, apparently quite nervous, as we can now put it together, uh, he, he, and he tells us. And, and he had uh, the body at that time in bags in the back of the car, and the police stopped him. They even looked and asked him what was in the, the bags, and he said he some garbage he hadn't gotten rid of. He explained he was up late because he'd been worried about his parents' uh, uh, divorce and and, and uh, again the poor officer couldn't have known this but he ended up getting a ticket for driving on the, the left side of the road and he was allowed to, to leave he, he maintained uh, here is a man 18 who has just killed the day before a man has the body in the back seat in garbage bag a police flashlight he stopped by the police it's in the early morning hours as I recollect two or three in the morning stopped by police they light up the back that contains the bags with a flashlight, and he maintains enough coolness to persuade them that nothing is wrong and to persuade them to leave him to go on. Is that correct? Yes, sir. In terms of the, uh, the incident involving um, at his... Did you read the sentencing transcript uh, when he was sentenced to, in the second-degree sexual assault on the young man? If it was provided to me, I read it, because I read everything was provided. I, I don't recall offhand. If you want to jog my memory by telling me a bit more, I can tell right. you whether Did he stand in court when summoned by the judge? Did he stand in court and persuade the judge that he intended to live well, that he was going to do the right thing, and articulately persuade the judge that he should get probation, even though he had already killed at least three men? 
I wasn't provided that, but I know that he had someone help him in writing a letter where he wanted to get out early from work release, uh, talking about learning his lesson and that he'd never do it again. So I, I got that sort of information from that letter, but I don't think I saw the actual speech he might have made when he was sentenced. Would you like to hear that? Well, I don't know if it's a matter of like or not. If you feel it's important, I'll be glad to listen and answer your question. I'm sorry, sir. Could, could someone get me a glass of water, too, for a moment? I apologize. Yes, please. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. You, you don't have to wait for that, but I'm fine. This is now, he is being sentenced on the second degree sexual assault. And the date is March, uh, strike that, May, May 23rd, 1989. Okay. Courts and recess. here, Jeffrey Dahmer leaving the courtroom, a recess necessary because E. Michael McCann, uh, it appears, is going to play uh, or read from a transcript from a Jeffrey Dahmer court appearance back in 19, 1989 when he was asking the, uh, the judge to put him on probation following a, uh, a conviction for second degree sexual assault. McCann uh, most likely will, will find that transcript and then read from that transcript and ask the judge or ask the uh, doctor who's testifying if that's another example of Jeffrey Dahmer being persuasive. So far this morning uh, we have been listening again to Dr. Frederick Berlin. Uh, Dr. Berlin is a, uh, a psychiatrist and a psychologist, uh, a medical doctor who heads the sexual disorders clinic at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, you're looking at a picture of the, uh, the media center right now. Dr. Berlin and his conversation with uh, District Attorney E. Michael McCann, much less spirited than yesterday's conversation where they actually got into a number of verbal arguments the courtroom not as crowded today as in past days. Fewer family members in the courtroom, at least for this morning session. Dr. Frederick Berlin, again the doctor who yesterday testified for the defense that uh, Jeffrey Dahmer's mental illness, necrophilia, and his unusual sexual urges to have uh, sex with a corpse caused uh, Jeffrey Dahmer to go out of control and to be unable to control his behavior. The doctor uh, saying, in fact, that that necrophilia is what caused Jeffrey Dahmer to kill each and every one of his victims. Now District Attorney E. Michael McCann trying to uh, shoot holes in that testimony by uh, pointing out that Jeffrey Dahmer seemed very much in control of his behavior and that the uh, necrophilia is not responsible for Jeffrey Dahmer's behavior. McCann pointing out that Jeffrey Dahmer uh, went to Ohio State University for a period of time, lived in a dorm with a number of other men, and that he did not kill there. That Jeffrey Dahmer was in the military for two and a half years, stationed in Germany in a barracks with other men, and that he did not kill there. That Jeffrey Dahmer had numerous uh, sexual incidents at hotels and bathhouses bath in Milwaukee and Chicago and did not kill there. McCann pointing out that Jeffrey Dahmer had a number of uh, 
one night stands at his at his grandmother's house and at his apartments and that he did he did not kill there that Jeffrey Dahmer had incidents where he sexually assaulted uh, minors and that he did not kill them McCann uh, obviously attempting to portray Jeffrey Dahmer as someone who had the availability of victims and didn't kill them and so it's uh, McCann implying that it's it's not fair to assume that uh, Jeffrey Dahmer was driven by these unusual sexual urges and that he couldn't control himself and had to kill McCann pointing out that there are a number of incidents where he could have killed very easily and that he did not the thing that McCann is looking for now is the Jeffrey Dahmer's statement to the judge back in 1989 after he had been uh, found guilty of sexual for sexually assaulting a minor in the previous year that minor was uh, obviously not one of the individuals that Jeffrey Dahmer killed McCann most likely going to point out how persuasive of an individual Jeffrey Dahmer can be if he wants to be and how much Jeffrey Dahmer can seem in control if he wants to seem in control and most likely that will be a uh, something like a, a plea to the judge saying I'm a good citizen uh, I deserve to be on uh, probation rather than in jail I deserve to be on work release rather than uh, sentenced to 24 hours a day in prison in fact uh, by that point in time, McCann said when Jeffrey Dahmer is making this speech to the judge back in 1989, he had already killed three people. So uh, showing that during the period of time where Jeffrey Dahmer was doing his killing, he was not an individual who was uh, psychotic and out of control, but that an individual who was very much in control of, of the image that he presented to uh, his victims and to the public and to a judge and uh, officials in a courtroom at that point in time. Interesting, uh, at that period, representing Jeffrey Dahmer was also Gerald Boyle. That was Gerald Boyle's first uh, contact with Jeffrey Dahmer in the, in the legal system, and it was because of, of that uh, client-attorney relationship that they had back in 1989 that Gerald Boyle was called by uh, Jeffrey Dahmer's father, Lionel Dahmer, after Jeffrey Dahmer was arrested in July of last year to represent uh, Jeffrey Dahmer during this incident. Why don't we take a, uh, a short break here as E. Michael McCann, I'm glancing at the courtroom to make sure that uh, we aren't uh, ready to go yet, and it appears that there will still be a, uh, a minute or two before we're ready to go. So why don't we take a break, and then we'll come back and we'll listen to Jeffrey Dahmer's statement to a judge back in 1989 when Jeffrey Dahmer is is pleading for leniency. Mom, I have to pick up the kids and do some shopping. I'll call you later. Bye, Marilyn. Give my love to the kids. Bye-bye. You know, six months ago, my daughter wouldn't have dreamed of leaving me alone. But now with the person's personal... Coming to you live once again from the Milwaukee County Safety Building here in the Media Center, just a few floors below the fifth floor courtroom where we are in a recess for the uh, trial of Jeffrey Dahmer. The judge uh, giving E. Michael McCann a few moments to come up with some uh, statement that Jeffrey Dahmer made back in 1989 when he was asking a judge for uh, leniency after he had uh, been found guilty for sexually assaulting a minor boy. Glancing at the monitor, still nothing going on in the courtroom uh, we will join the courtroom a, a, as soon as testimony gets underway. We seem to have ironed out most of our technical problems. That's why we couldn't join you directly at uh, 8.30 this morning from the uh, media center. We seem to have ironed out most of those technical problems. You'll notice uh, a little bit of a, a buzz in our audio, but we're working on that, and that should be fine in, uh, in just a little while. Dr. Frederick Berlin, the uh, man who is on the stand right now testifying, has testified in past cases as an expert witness. He is the the man who is in charge of the sexual disorders clinic at Johns Hopkins uh, University and Medical School in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, expert witnesses are often brought in uh, during cases like this, and we have a story now about the subject of expert witnesses from Myra Sanchez. Can only guess what goes on in the mind of Jeffrey Dahmer. The same is true for the experts. It's not something you can weigh in a test tube. It's not something you can see on an x-ray. 
Psychiatrist Basil Jackson says even different doctors have different opinions about what insanity means. Legally and psychiatrically, we're talking about apples and oranges. Not the same thing whatsoever. And that is, I think, the hardest thing that people have to understand. Another point. If a doctor is paid for his opinion, will he say what the defense or prosecution wants to hear? There, there is such a thing as, as a psychiatric prostitution. There is. What does that mean? That they'll, they'll come up with a finding which uh, will benefit the guy who pays their bill. Dr. Jackson says when a jury hears differing opinions from different psychiatrists, they often could sort of cancel each other out. And in the end, their testimony could have very little impact. Myra Sanjak, TV6 News, Milwaukee. Once again, joining you from the media center here on the second floor of the Milwaukee County Safety Building. We can uh, guess by the questioning that has taken place so far this morning what uh, McCann's... Uh, what the questioning will be like as he continues to talk with Dr. Berlin. McCann pointing out that uh, Jeffrey Dahmer a number of times had the uh, opportunity to kill, but he did not, pointing out that uh, Jeffrey Dahmer in fact demonstrated control a number of times, uh, and that is uh, diametrically opposed to what Dr. Berlin has uh, said previously, that Jeffrey Dahmer was out of control and that his sexual urges were in fact uh, controlling him and that he could not stop himself simply uh, because he may have wanted to stop himself and that he could not uh, stop thinking things because he simply wanted them out of his mind that uh, Jeffrey Dahmer's urges were in fact controlling him. We can take a look at the, uh, the courtroom now and you'll see that still nothing uh, taking place momentarily we expect to get going. This is the uh, normal morning break. Usually there's a break in the morning then there's a, uh, a lunch break that has, has uh, been different every day, sometimes a half hour. Yesterday it was an hour and a half. And then usually once they get going in the afternoon, they, they take a, uh, a break as well. McCann also pointing out this morning that uh, numerous times uh, Jeffrey Dahmer did everything he could to, to hide his behavior. He said uh, he was often dropped off. Jeffrey Dahmer did not drive brought his victims home in a cab, but made sure that the cabs would drop uh, he and his victims off several blocks from his house, whether it was his grandmother's house when he was living there, or his apartment on North 25th Street, to uh, basically cover his, uh, cover his steps. That Jeffrey Dahmer cut up the bodies, McCann said he cut up those bodies to, to hide the evidence, and that he used a, a barrel full of acid to dispose of the bones pointing out apparently that uh, once again Jeffrey Dahmer knew what he was doing was wrong which is a point that the doctor uh, Frederick Berlin yesterday said he was not contesting that he also agreed that uh, Jeffrey Dahmer in fact knew that what he was doing was wrong but everything's boiled down to uh, whether or not Jeffrey Dahmer had control of his behavior uh, Mr. Boyle told uh, reporters here in the media center yesterday that uh, he, for all intents and purposes, was no longer arguing and had not intended to argue that uh, Jeffrey Dahmer didn't know that what he was doing was wrong, that uh, Mr. Boyle's tact would simply be to argue that Jeffrey Dahmer was afflicted with a, uh, a severe mental disease and that he could not control his behavior, that the disease was crawling, controlling him. Seeing as how there is nothing taking place in the courtroom right now, why don't we take another break and then come back in about a minute? they're out and they're not to know that just as in any criminal case they don't know uh, that it's a life sentence versus 10 years or whatever great thanks very much for taking the time while we wait for our, uh, court to get going as I glance at the uh, monitor here I notice Dahmer is back in court so we anticipate things to get going very quickly here we will not take a break then and uh, we'll stay with the courtroom once again if you're just joining us uh, what we're waiting for McCann district attorney E. Michael McCann was looking for uh, something that Jeffrey Dahmer said in the courtroom back in 1989 when he was uh, asking a judge for leniency in relation to uh, the sexual assault of a minor and McCann apparently trying to point out that uh, Jeffrey Dahmer is a very persuasive individual in control of his uh, thoughts at least at that point in time even though he had already McCann said killed three people by that point in time when he was speaking to the judge. Let's rejoin the courtroom.
I'm just going to read portions of that transcript. I, I've edited out some of the portions, even. Uh, the defendant was uh, being sentenced and was called, the judge called upon him to make such statement as he might wish to influence the sentencing. The defendant, and I want you to assess the coolness. Defendant, I don't know how much weight you can put on what I have to say. I am an alcoholic, not the sort that has to have a drink every single day. But when I do drink, I go overboard, and I imagine that labels me as being an alcoholic. Some discussion back and forth between him and the judge on that. Then the defendant, the prosecution has raised very serious charges against me, and I can understand why. What I've done is very serious. I never meant to give anyone the impression that I thought otherwise. I've never been in this position before. Nothing this awful. This is a nightmare come true. If anything would shock me out of my past behavior patterns, it's this. The one thing I have in my mind is that that is stable and that gives me some source of pride is my job. I've come very close to losing it because of my actions, which I take full responsibility for. I'm the one to blame for all of this. What I've done has cut both ways. It's hurt the victim and it's hurt me. It's a no-win situation. All I can do is beg you please spare my job. Please give me a chance to show what I can, that I can tread the straight and narrow and not get involved in any situation like this ever again. I would not only ask, I beg you please, don't destroy my life. I know I deserve a great deal of punishment. I'm not trying to elicit your sympathy, but I would ask you please, don't wipe me out completely. Some discussion about sexual problems, then the defendant goes on. But I have had such in the, the judge says, do you have relationship with adult males? This of course involved the minor. The defendant, I have had in the past, not recently, this enticing a child was the climax of my idiocy. It's just, it's going to destroy me. I'm afraid this one incident. I don't know what in the world I was thinking when I did it. I know I was under the influence. As far as purposely drugging him, that was never my intention. I've been taking sleeping pills because I worked third shift for several years now. I take quite a few of them because I built up a tolerance to them and it was never my intention to purposely drug him. I wouldn't have offered him money if I had planned on drugging him. But nevertheless, I'm not trying to excuse what I did. I'm sorry, are you asking me a question? Or? Basically, this show a rather cool, collected person under a great deal of stress. He's facing, he's, the judge could put him up for, as I recall, it's 20 years for the two counts that were involved. Was it enticing? getting him off the street into the house, one count, the touching in the house was two counts. Mm -hmm. I believe that's 20 years. Right. Rather cool presentation for a man facing 20 years. Would that be accurate? Yes, and I furthermore believe at that stage, and I'd said this earlier, that he was not interested in stopping. I think he'd made up his mind it was his destiny, and uh, he was not going to uh, believe uh, the treatment was going to be helpful. It's, it's interesting because he used something similar with me saying that now this time he learned a lesson and he knows he wouldn't be out but hypothetically if he worried be okay and i didn't believe that for a moment either it's a rather manipulative lie to the court well oh, it's it's, really? it's clearly uh, not honest and also in terms of the the time that when the in the conorac synthesis impone incident the 14 year old laotian boy at north 25th and west state street uh, where he had drugged him and then went out for uh, drinks where the defendant went out for drinks the Laotian boy apparently awakened, got out of the apartment, made his way a block or two to North 25th and West State. Citizens were there, fire truck arrived, police arrived, and the defendant managed to persuade the police that there was nothing foul afoot. Is that correct? Yes, particularly remarkable since there was a, a body in a room right next door with a Absolutely. door. Absolutely. He did it on the street. They came into the dwelling, and right there, which to me would call for a, a great deal of cool the defendant well, same way that he was caught same was the the body in the garbage bags and the police officer three feet away here we have it again with Connor accent and phone and he's apparently capable of persuading the officers is he not yeah he wasn't cool because we talked about it. he was as you can imagine extremely anxious but he was certainly able to present it in a way where uh, tragically, the officers had no sense of what was really going on. That's correct. I'm going to talk about some alternatives available to this defendant to relieve his sexual sexuality. Uh, you do know that he went to bathhouses in Milwaukee, uh, was excluded because of the drugging, and then started to go in bathhouses in Chicago. I think that went on into 1991. 
To my knowledge, he was never excluded from a bathhouse in Chicago and could have continued to go to those bathhouses. Are you aware of that as an alternative? Well, again, I don't quibble. I wouldn't accept alternative because I said in my testimony earlier, the fact that he's capable of other kinds of sexual activity doesn't necessarily erase these cravings. And if the cravings become overpowering, uh, just because you can have normal sex isn't necessarily the treatment or the solution of the problem. The other of the following alternatives were also available to him. He occasionally paid people for sexual services. Uh, and as you know, certainly if a person wishes to sim simulate a prostitute to simulate lying unconscious or lying dead, uh, such a, pro a prostitute will do that. He also could have handcuffed his partners if he wanted that. Uh, and there was evidence, of course, that he did in fact procure handcuffs in terms of control. Uh, there was evidence that he could use a mannequin, apparently drew some pleasure. Uh, there's, that's called Pygmalionism. He could have procured another mannequin, bought one. Indeed, in some sexual service places, they provide mannequins, do they not, uh, as an alternative. Uh, he did render his, some of his sexual partners unconscious. Uh, drew relief, evidence that he had orgasm, climax, uh, before they were dead in a number of the cases. Uh, and certainly drew relief without killing them by just by rendering them unconscious. Uh, he continued apparently used the alternative of, of, of uh, pornography and masturbating uh, and uh, could have continued to do that. Um, yes. You're asking a whole series of questions here. You're not getting any answers. Yes, I'm just pointing out a list of alternatives. I'm, and I'll ask is that those alternatives okay. were available. Okay. That was my intent. Yeah. Detected. Several separate yeah. questions with no answers, and well, that leaves the record a little empty. Yeah, fine, Judge. I, I'm okay. suggesting all. Go ahead. Go ahead. And of course, developing a long-term uh, homosexual relationship. Uh, those alternatives were available to relieve sexual drives. Not exactly what he wished, and a lot of people don't get exactly what they wish. But those were available to relieve those drives, were they not? Well, again, it's going to be the same answer that I, I, I gave you before in terms of how I view the issue of alternatives. The fact that you pointed out he had someone in handcuffs and, and uh, uh, the fact that he had him in handcuffs and alive wasn't satisfying the craving that, in my opinion, was driving him. So in that sense, I don't accept it as alternative. I understand how, you're, you know, how, how someone can see it that way. In terms of hard sciences and soft sciences, psychiatry is a soft science, isn't it? I want to answer carefully because, Matt, you know, I don't want to quibble. It doesn't have the technology, for example, if we're comparing it with open-heart surgery. Uh, but I don't want to go too far with that. Psychiatrists are trained in, in, in medicine. They go through all the various rotations uh, in medicine. Uh, there's a lot of training about trying to maintain objectivity. Uh, there are some developing technologies now that, that look at, at brain function. Uh, I think as in any other area of medicine, people talk about the, uh, the uh, science of medicine, the art of medicine. I, I think there is a scientific base uh, for psychiatry. I spent many years training in psychology and medicine and so on. Uh, but the technologies that might let you say it's a hard science like surgery, there I'd say, no, it's not a hard, it's not a hard discipline of medicine in the same sense as hard surgery. In a hard science, there's the use of the experimental method. Uh, the, the tester tightly controls the matter to be studied, controls the environment uses standard instrumentation and documentation and can measure somewhat definitively what transpires in the experiment. Is that yes, accurate? But we basically? do the same thing, sir. We just, for example, have applied for a grant to do what's called a double-blind study I, to I, make sure the I, medicines I, were I, used. Would you ask, may I ask, I asked him a question and he, as he does, volunteers. That's how a hard science is connected, okay. is it? Mr. Gandry's yeah. question, Dr. Listen to Mr. McGann's question and answer the question. Is it not true in the hard sciences? They use the experimental method. The tester tightly controls the matter to be studies, controls the environment, uses standard instrumentation, and can measure somewhat definitively what transpires in the experiment. And what I'm trying to say, because not, do, the answer is, yes is or no. no, doctor. It's yes or no. Okay, in the hard sciences, then the answer is yes, that those methods are important. And one can establish by doing the same experiment can definitively predict and analyze what's transpiring. Is that correct? That's correct. And the sciences such as psychiatry, you do not conduct experiments in the strict sense. It's mainly observational, to a very good extent observational. Observe people, what their problems are, uh, and analyzing the differences. Uh, 
and uh, undertake much of psychiatry is that, is it not? No, sir, I, uh, that's where I disagree, and uh, again, I hope I can explain why, because the answer is no, I'm not avoiding the question, but uh, I was uh, just a step ahead of you, and I don't agree with that, and is it okay if I explain why I don't? Well, you can do that on redirect, Dr. All right, if you don't want me to anymore. Certainly within the field of medicine, in terms of, of tight, of uh, analyzing a problem, if a person has a broken leg, you can sit down and... and uh, the doctors, the bone doctors, look it over, take x-rays, and can pretty definitively tell you what the problem is, can they not? Certainly in a broken leg, um, one can definitively tell that someone has a broken leg. And there's technology that can, can do that, such as x-rays, and give a pretty definitive answer. That's correct. And there is not such technology of that nature, that hard technology, in the field of psychiatry that you can analyze a problem with the same definitive certitude? Sometimes there is. If a patient had delirium, we could do an EEG. If it showed diffuse slowing, that would confirm a psychiatric diagnosis of delirium. Let's just take the idea of paraphilias themselves, just within the field of medicine, without looking to the courts at all. Just how doctors perceive it. Some doctors would say, yes, that could be such a disease as would qualify under the ALI legal test. Other psychiatrists would say, no, that isn't such a disease as would qualify under the ALI test. I'm talking now just what psychiatrists think about it without thinking what same courts do. Am I accurate on that? Psychiatrists could disagree on whether or not they wanted to call that a disease. In terms of, they might say, yes, it's a paraphilia. They may agree that it's a paraphilia. But in terms of, in other words, some might say it is not a disease. Some psychiatrists would say it's not a disease. Yes, I think I covered that in the original questioning, and I agree that the answer to that is yes. Does that fall, do you have any impressions yourself about what the percentage breakdown is in psychiatrists? Now, grant you, there's been no, no uh, assessing or surveying of psychiatrists about whether the psychiatrist would agree that paraphilia is a disease? Yes. I, I, I won't guess I won't on that. So, but then there's a substantial percentage that say, no, it is not a disease. Would that be I, accurate? I don't know that that's correct either. But there's definitely a division. You'd agree on that? There are some people who would say it isn't a disease. I would agree with that. So and you have no idea what the percentage breakdown is? As you pointed out, there's never been a systematic survey done. And for some reason, you're reluct reluctant to opine on it. Is it? I'm reluctant because every time I try to talk, you tell me you don't want me to say so much. So I'm trying not to say too much. In any event, there's even on the basic issue, is paraphilia a disease? Uh, there's a disagreement on that within psychiatry. To try to answer it directly without expanding, yes, there's a disagreement. The paraphilia is basically defined, it's looked at as a problem, as a mental disorder within the DSM-3R because of the object that is for which the affection or the attraction lies. Is that correct? Not exactly. It's looked at as an abnormality in DSM-3R because people are experiencing something different in terms of their mental state than what's normal. And if you're having abnormal mental experiences, we psychiatrists say that's a mental disorder. It's not abnormal to have recurrent sexual urges or to have recurrent uh, sexually arousing uh, fantasies, is it? That's it's sure abnormal to walk around all day having fantasies about having sex with corpses. Doctor, you didn't answer my question. What's the question? The question was, it's not abnormal, is it, to have recurring intense sexual urges and recurring sexual fantasies. That in and of itself is not abnormal, is it? Not necessarily. And for a person, the abnormality that relates why it qualifies a paraphilia is the object of those fantasies. And in this particular case, the object would be, depending whether you accept an unconscious person or a living compliant person or a dead person. In this case, you've made the necrophilia started you down that path because there were dead bodies involved with some sex. Is that correct? It is the content of the fantasies, not the object. I, I'm not, I'm saying no, I don't agree with you saying the object. I'm saying the content of the fantasies, having that kind of mental content recurrently running through your head and a content that's associated with intense sexual arousal is abnormal. All right, it's the content being a dead body. That's what it makes it? The content being all we've talked about, okay? I don't want to repeat because you're asking me to be brief. But all right, all if a person that. simply has this recurrent thing about a dead body, would that qualify as a paraphilia? Recurrent sexual urges, recurrent uh, sexually arousing fantasies, just about a dead body. 
Would that qualify? That would qualify if they're having intense, recurrent, sexually arousing fantasies and urges about having sex with a dead body. The definition included, it wasn't relevant to say it had to be at least six months. This has gone on here for years. If I'm walking around for more than six months having intense, recurrent, sexually arousing fantasies and, uh, and urges about having sex with a dead body, I got a mental disorder. All right, we got a person now, a human being, that is going around having recurrent, intense sexual desires with recurrent sexual fantasies about the man about an attractive woman that lives next door. And that goes on for months and even a year. Is he mentally ill? Got a disorder? I'm trying to avoid it. I, I doubt it, but you know, you're a hypothetical guy I'm not examining as a doctor. I made the point earlier, we make value judgments. If this isn't hurting anybody else, if it's not causing suffering, if it's not causing distress, it isn't the business of psychiatry to get into the personal thoughts of people that don't cause any difficulty. So if, if he's thinking that, it isn't interfering with his life, it isn't hurting anyone, under those circumstances, no, that's not a disorder. And he wouldn't be a mental disorder? That, I'm agreeing with you to, to answer directly. Yes, I agree that would not be a mental disorder. There are many people, are there not? Maybe it's someone that, uh, maybe it's the woman next door, or a man with an attractive woman. Maybe she works in the backyard, dresses scantily, a normal person, he watches her and sees her relatively frequently, has intense sexual desires, very intense, experiences erection maybe every time he sees her, fantasizes what he would like to do with her, thinks about it, maybe masturbates about her from time to time, and she's there through the years and he's watching her through the years, and he wrestles with it, and she's a married lady and he is not going to move on her and he wrestles with those urges, and he doesn't move on her. He's not mentally disordered, is he, doctor? I'm pausing because some men would move under certain under that circumstance, but I wouldn't say they're mentally ill, no. And there are people that have jobs together, people that are married, one is married to X, the other is married to Y, and they're thrown together by chance. And they have a keen sexual attraction to each other. They may never communicate it. They may work for years and out of a sense of dignity and respect and for their marriage and their spouse. They may be powerfully attracted to that woman. Try to push out the fantasy, but they're working with her every day, and that fantasy comes back, and they're sexually aroused by it. And they may dream about it, and they struggle with it for years, and they don't even express the affection for the other person. They don't even communicate with their eyes. They control themselves and they wrestle with it, and those fantasies come back, and those desires come back every day, and they struggle with it. There are such people, are there not, Doctor? Well, I might want to examine that person to see if he's ill. If I ask the average guy if he's walking around all day, having to constantly fight off these repeated intense urges and fantasies, he's been doing what, it for months, you you I would wonder whether or not he was ill. I wouldn't say based on that he is. But it would be reasonable. He said he's suffering. We got into the ballpark that I said can make you a patient. It would be reasonable for me with this suffering person to wonder whether he ought to be a patient. We'll strike the suffering. He's not suffering. You start taking enough of it away and make him a normal guy, I'll agree with he's a normal guy. All right, what I'm saying is, and you know what I'm saying is, that there are people that have intense sexual urges, that have recurrent, intense, sexually arousing fantasies, and, and I'm we think some of them may uh, have a about about women if it's a man about one man after another if it's a homosexual if he's a homosexual about a woman towards a man perhaps and we expect those we don't call them mentally disordered people and yet their desires are very strong their fantasies are very strong and they're not considered mentally disordered for that are they doctor well, I think I've answered your question and the answer is that they are not considered mentally disordered. Well, there correct? were several answers because you phrased it several different ways, but I think I've responded. You and I know that we expect people with strong sexual desires merely because it's a man for a woman or maybe another man for a man. Under, cer under circumstances, they're expected to control themselves, are they You not? heard me say I don't want to excuse sin by calling it illness, but I also said I don't want to think that somebody's just misbehaving when they're ill. Some of the examples you've given me suggest someone's probably pretty normal and we need to hold people responsible and accountable. If, however, someone becomes impaired in some fashion, then we are mandated morally and ethically to factor that into the equation when we decide what it is we're going to do about that individual. There are men that go away at the armed services. Strike that. 
give another one. A man, a very normal man, with strong sexual desires, and perhaps his wife becomes disabled in some fashion, seriously disabled, maybe at a nursing home. He has very strong sexual desires, fantasizes about it, strong sexual urges, but he is very much committed to his wife and very much committed to the dignity of that marriage. Perhaps for moral reasons, he does not even agree with masturbation. He does not masturbate. He contains himself. And he, and, uh, he goes forward and, and abides by it. Doesn't, isn't tortured by it, doesn't suffer by it, but has those strong desires, those strong desires and those strong fantasies. Well, is he a mentally disordered man? No, as a compassionate physician, I, I might want to counsel him and help him, but I'd never say that I am labeling him as mentally ill. At some point, the defendant said to virtually everybody, the police and everybody else, that he, he stopped, stopped trying. Yes, sir. And... Um, uh, then I don't know uh, somewhere there's the word embrace that he embraced this I don't know was that in your direct examination I don't want to put words in your mouth no, and I know you're not trying to do that I don't recall that word. Uh, have you ever heard and I think it's from Hope's essay on man uh, the statement that the vice uh, at first shocking then tolerated finally embraced you recall that in uh, that to state in that Pope's essay on man you know I couldn't have quoted it back to you but I think I've heard that somewhere along the way In part of your literature at the Johns Hopkins, does this quote appear? Admittedly, sometimes it is difficult to determine whether is a person is trying their best and failing or just not trying. Does that sound like, like the quote from the literature at the Johns it's Hopkins? It's not just a quote from the literature. It's a quote from uh, something I've written. Yes. And that's accurate. Is it not true? Yes, I've tried to make that very clear that we have to distinguish between... Uh, whether someone's trying and whether they're not trying, but also to put it into the bigger picture, because I don't want you to take out of context what I said, if someone's been so beaten down by an illness that they can't control, that they've given up the fight, that also needs to be considered. So I, I, I absolutely said that, I agree with that, but I want it not to be taken out of context. Yes. And in terms of, uh, all of us are gonna, all, this, all the professionals are going to be asked this question, and in my opinion, should be asked this question, okay. so the jury knows. Sir? I don't want you to take offense at it. That, that's fine. You undertook to take this assignment, as did all the professionals, on the arrangement that there will be certain fees paid, yes, probably on an hourly basis. I'm not sure. Did you un make such an arrangement with Mr. Boyle? Well, I'll explain my arrangement. Um, I've been involved for several months. I think I've received about $3,500. Uh, he told me there wasn't a lot of money available. He said he could uh, guarantee it up to 10000 I told him I've never refused to come, even if people didn't have the money, but I certainly would be grateful to have the 10000 He's assured me at some point that would be available. And I pretty much tell that to any attorney. I, I, again, I feel strongly about this, so you forgive me, but I'm not a hard hand. I call it as I see it. It is immoral to refuse services to people that are poor, and that was the understanding that we made. Well, the, the, you're speaking of Mr. Dahmer himself individually or his family. I understand that this has been a tremendous expense for his family. I did indicate I would, I'm trying to earn a living too, so I'd submit a bill. I said if they weren't able to pay it, I would not make an issue out of that, but I, I expect that I will probably get in total $10,000 because Mr. Boyles told me that. The doctor, when before Mr. Dahmer was sentenced on the second degree sexual assault case, he was referred to a Dr. Charles Lodel. Is that correct, a psychologist for certain tests? I, yes, that is correct. And you've got, you were supplied that, and it's, is it safe and true to say accurate to say that he lied a number of times in statements to Dr. Loden. Again, there's been so many doctors here. Uh, I, I need to be careful. If you want to refresh my memory uh, further, I, I can answer. I, I remember Dr. Logo's name and, and reading that amongst the various things I've looked at, but I, I don't want to answer something when I'm not sure I'm correct. All right. All right. In discussion, this is the second degree sexual assault case. Mr. Dahmer is now relating this to Dr. Charles Lodel. Okay. Mr. Dahmer said that he did not intend to engage in sexual contact with the lad. Do you okay, believe so that's that, true or a lie? No, that's a lie. Mr. Franny, when talking about the earlier, what he described as urinating in the park, finally Mr. Dahmer brought to my attention the fact that he'd been arrested for lewd and lascivious conduct approximately one year ago for urinating in a county park. Did you believe that, that it was just urinating? No, not for a moment. 
and that would be a lie then. Is that true? Yes, sir. In fact, this may be the report where Mr. Dahmer didn't even indicate it was a boy. I know one of the doctors that saw him didn't even realize it was males rather than females. I'm not sure if this was the particular one. This was the doctor to which he had been referred by his counsel at that time. Okay. And then also that he said to that Dr. Lodel that he had a, has a regular prescription for sleeping pills from a physician because of problems he has sleeping during the day. That was not true. He was getting those prescription pills for certain other, uh, for drugging people. Well, uh, he, well, again, I don't want to quibble. He, he, at times, I think, took a few of these for sleeping. Oh, I know we don't want to name the medicine, but it can be used for that purpose. So, so he did sometimes use it himself for that reason, but obviously that was not the major reason why he was getting it. So he was not being truthful in talking to the psychiatrist. That, that's absolutely correct. And uh, that psychiatrist concluded, uh, um, of course, based his opinion in part on what Mr. Dahmer had told him, no doubt. Well, I don't want to comment on that. I mean, it seems reasonable, but I, you'd have to talk to him to know exactly how heavily he weighed what Mr. Dahmer had. At any rate, this psychologist, Mr. Dahmer, in talking to this psychologist, to whom, to whom he had been referred by counsel, told at least a number of lies. Yes, in fact, I don't know of any professional that he had been honest with and, and revealed the truth of this to at any time prior to being apprehended this, uh, on this occasion. That's all. You direct I have some. <clears throat> the fellow that Mr. McCann was talking about, the person who lives in the house and sees the lady next door, and he watches her, and she's scantily clad, and he gets excited, and he has these fantasies about her. I believe you answered that. Now I want to ask you about that same fellow who then brings the woman over to his house and drugs her and kills her and makes uh, love with her in a dead state and then uh, dismembers her body and keeps trophies and then moves to another town and assume that same person that Mr. Can talked about does the same thing in Kansas and the same thing in Nevada and he keeps on the same pattern over and over again. Uh, might you want to talk to that fella to see maybe if he might have a mental illness uh, such as uh, he needs uh, treatment for it? Well, obviously, one would be very much wondering in that case if a person is mentally ill. Because it's not just being sexually aroused or horny that counts. It's what it does to you and what you do about it that is a definite component, correct? Certainly, I mean, used to word horny, people get horny, and uh, absolutely that shouldn't be defined as a mental disorder. Things that all of us experience should not be defined as mental disorders. But when we get into mental experiences that we don't ordinarily experience, that, that cause all sorts of problems, then I'm comfortable saying that talking about that as a mental disorder is not unreasonable. Now, Doctor, Mr. McCann asked you a lot of proper questions yes, about sir. Mr. Dahmer's sense of controlling his environment being able to control what he is doing in the in his life and how he lies to people that kind of control the kind of control that he was able to fool a judge and a psychologist and a, everybody else he talked to person suffering from mental diseases is that equivalent to the concept that all of them are also dumb and stupid the answer is no, it's not equivalent. A person can be severely mentally ill and not be dumb or stupid, right? Absolutely. There's a difference between mental retardation, which refers to level of intellectual capability and various other kinds of mental disorders. Your uh, position as a psychiatrist talking to people who are mentally disabled because of schizophrenia when you talk to them they don't appear dumb or stupid, do they? One could do an IQ test on someone with schizophrenia and might discover they're extremely bright in terms of intelligence. They're two different aspects of, of mental life. And you can carry on a conversation, the layman could carry on a conversation for a schizophrenic who's in his schizophrenic mode and not have any idea that he's talking to somebody who's mentally disabled. Correct? Well, that, that might or might not be true. Many of the people with schizophrenia become delusional, hallucinated, they start acting uh, uh, suspicious and so on. So, no, that's not necessarily the case in, in the example you're using here of schizophrenia. So the fact of Mr. Dahmer's total and complete control over whatever he was doing in life and all of these lies that he told and all of the subterfuges, 
Does that in any way, knowing all of those things, in any way alter the opinion you gave here in court? No, the fact that he wasn't telling people he'd been out there killing lots of folks uh, in the context of him, uh, as I believe it, having kind of given up and seen it as, as his destiny. It's interesting in the article on necrophilia, that's an exact word of one of the other people used in a case example that, that uh, have, uh, had reached a point where he thought his, it was his destiny. So one issue is, assuming for the sake of this discussion, he can't control it and he's kind of given in to the illness. That's one issue. Does the fact that he then lied and hid it and didn't tell people change the conclusion? No, it doesn't. It would have been nice if he would have been telling the truth, obviously, uh, but the idea that he would have been expected to tell people I'd been going around killing people, particularly when the probation officer kept saying, if you tell us anything, you can go back to jail. The idea that when there's a part of him that's pushing and pushing and wanting him to do it, that, he, that that part of him, metaphorically speaking, might not bring him on his own to volunteer it, that doesn't surprise me. So I hope I've answered your question, but that, that's how I would see In order to be a necrophiliac, is it necessary that you kill every person you come in contact with where the scene is such that you can kill? Of course not. Uh, uh, when I was asked earlier, for example, about obsessive compulsive disorder, where the question just assumes that these people are compulsive, and, and a contrast was attempted to be made between obsessive compulsive disorder and paraphilia. Uh, I worked with obsessive hand washers, so if I, I, maybe this will help clarify if I can tell you what I saw with them. Uh, recall I was at the Maudsley in England, and I'll just give you, it's getting long, and I'll give you one example to keep it short. Uh, but this was a woman, and I, I won't use her name, but she was an obsessive hand washer. Uh, every morning before she could uh, go out to work, uh, she would spend about two hours washing her hands. She'd go through this uh, procedure, and, and she had to do it just so, and, 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 and would continue to do it, and really couldn't bring herself to stop, so she'd spend a few hours. Her, her hands were so raw, they were red. She'd get through work uh, in the morning. She'd, she'd still be thinking about it, it'd be on her mind, but she managed to get through work. And lunch, instead of going to lunch like other people, she was again uh, doing this, and it would take her almost the hour. Sometimes she'd be in difficulty for being late because she couldn't stop within the hour. She'd kind of muddle through the afternoon with the thoughts, go home and, and go through this ritual for a couple of hours when she got home. Now, if you didn't know anything about this disorder, you could make the observation, well, gee, uh, she, she, uh, uh, she was working in the morning, and, and gee, she was working in the afternoon, and uh, uh, it looks like she's just choosing to do these things in, uh, on her free time. Uh, but I can tell you that this lady absolutely was not able to stop this. Uh, this was no doubt uh, an obsessive compulsive uh, di disorder. And this lady, uh, certainly before she got into treatment, uh, in spite of how obvious it was to everybody how driven she was, was denying she needed help and it was necessary to really confront her before treatment could begin. So I, I hope that's an example of how, you know, she's not doing it 24 hours a day, all the time, regardless of what the circumstances might be. Various circumstances can impinge on it. But she was going to end up doing it because this clearly was a compulsion that this lady couldn't control. So that's the phenomenon that I believe we're trying to deal with. I won't belabor it. I've tried to explain it in several ways, but I, I hope that makes my point. Mr. McCann got into some questions about the field of psychiatry as opposed to the field of non-psychiatric medicine, where you can look at an x-ray and see a broken bone. Obviously, uh, you people have, have not developed to that point. Tell us, uh, as you were, uh, wanted to, uh, the difference uh, between these concepts of, of where the science, the soft science, as he called it, of psychiatry is, as opposed to the hard sciences that uh, exist in other fields. Tell us the difference. Well, I, it started to do that. For example, in the use of medications, uh, we, we require what's called a double-blind study, the same rigorous experiments he was uh, I don't think he's doing his job, but it sounded like he was suggesting we don't do that. Uh, uh, we wouldn't give a new drug to a psychiatric patient unless it had been studied. Uh, some pe nobody knew whether the person got the real drug or the placebo drug, the same thing in, in general medicine. And there have been rigorous scientific tests to show if, for example, that it alleviates depression, that it really does it, that it's not just a pill that someone is, for psychological reasons, thinking alleviates it, that there's a pharmacological basis for that. Uh, we now know a lot about how those drugs act. Uh, we believe there are certain uh, chemicals in the brain that are awry in diseases like schizophrenia and certain forms of depression. We can talk a bit about precisely what they are. We can demonstrate that all of the drugs that are effective in some of these disorders seem to have in common the fact that they affect the very same neurotransmitters in the brain that have been hypothesized to be the problem in a condition in the first place. 
We can talk about the typical age of onset in the same way I can tell you the typical age of onset of, of measles. I can talk about whether there's a family history in schizophrenia. I can tell you about genetic tests that show whether people are genetically predisposed. I can talk about the course of action over time, just as I can tell you if someone has asthma versus somebody has lung cancer, what the course will be. I can tell you pretty accurately if they have schizophrenia versus manic depressive illness, what the course will be. I can go on and give a lecture, and I'd love to, about those aspects of psychiatry, but that's what I was talking about. So you're saying it's not as much of a, quote, guessing game as some people like to make it. Years ago, I, you know, I, I had a degree in psychology, and I, I wondered, do you want to go all the way through medical school just to then be able to practice psychiatry? And, and way back when, I'm not sure it did make a lot of sense to have to be a physician to be a psychiatrist. The big excitement these days is the evolving knowledge about the relationship between mind and brain, uh, the understanding about how the, we are, in a sense, complicated pieces of machinery, uh, how various abnormalities in, in brain as, as a physical entity can affect mental experience and be reflected in behavior. And being a physician and having that grounding is very important. A psychiatrist is no less a physician than a surgeon. I'll give you some other areas have a bit more in terms of technology, so I have a lot more. Uh, there are just as many uncertainties in some other areas. If someone has an abnormal glucose tolerance test, there are big debates whether that's diabetes or isn't it, and how often does it have to be abnormal before it's diabetes or isn't it. Sometimes it's crystal clear, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's very clear it's a paraphilia, sometimes it isn't. The differences between psychiatry and the rest of medicine made to the uninformed seem great, but they're not nearly so great as, as I was afraid was being suggested. Now, let, let's talk about different people in different professions. You got policemen, and they may become sergeants, detectives, captains, uh, inspectors, chief. you got lawyers, judges, appellate judges, justices of the Supreme Court. you got doctors who practice family medicine, general surgeons, specific surgeons, the cardiovascular thoracic surgeons, the neurosurgeons. Let's talk about psychiatrists. Is forensic psychiatry like being a chief justice, or is it like being a chief of police? Where does it fit into the realm of things? Well, again, how, how do I answer that? There's no um, require. you know, in order to practice medicine, you have to be licensed by a particular state. In order to uh, be, uh, well, you could call yourself a psychiatrist just as you could call yourself a, a surgeon if someone would let you operate just because you're a licensed physician. Uh, but then there are certain specialties if you really want to be considered legitimately a professional uh, where you have to get certified. I talked about that I'm uh, certified as a specialist by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. Uh, surgeons get certified by a comparable board in surgery. There, and maybe I, I was, you know, trying to be modest here, and maybe, maybe I, I went a bit too far here, but I, when you talk about forensic psychiatry, uh, you know, there is no formal requirement. There's no formal specialty of forensic psychiatry, the way psychiatry is especially in medicine and, and so people that are drawn into the courtroom in the course of their work as a psychiatrist can uh, rightfully call themselves a forensic psychiatrist and I said I was trying to be modest but I guarantee you I've asked most of my colleagues whether they think Fred Berlin is one of the prominent forensic psychiatrists in, in the country and I, I don't mean to boast but I wanted to not mislead by, by being overly humbled they would say yes now, now what I had said yesterday there's one of the groups I belong to the two major groups of forensic psychiatrists that have decided relatively recently that they want to certify people as having specialty. But it's very different from the formal boards that are sanctioned. It's just a small group of people that are trying to develop. And in fact, the American Psychiatric Association is debating whether or not they should make forensic psychiatry a subspecialty. As of now, it isn't. And so I simply said yesterday, I didn't take that test. I don't think it's, it's important. There's a lot of things out of my real area of expertise that I don't get into. Uh, but I can stand here, and nobody's going to be able to say it isn't true, that I am a forensic psychiatrist. I'm asked to write uh, in the two major journals. I'm asked to review articles that they publish as an expert in forensic psychiatry to see whether or not they're acceptable. Uh, I don't mean to get worked out, but I kind of, um, you know, I was trying not to uh, be too boastful yesterday. It may have misled, and, and I'm certainly as much as a forensic psychiatrist as most others in, in, that, that call themselves that. Now, the cancer concept that you told us about, uh, the cancer of the mind, and you've explained that it isn't really a cancer as such, it was a term given to you. We all know that a cancer in the body left unchecked will be perhaps fatal. True? Absolutely. It grows. Mm -hmm. How about the concept of the cancer of the mind left unchecked as a psychiatrist what would you expect about that? 
the same thing, and that's why I thought it was a useful metaphor. You know, in our society, we sometimes have the sense if you can't do an x-ray and show it, it isn't real. Depression is real and people suffer with it and they describe it and we can see in their behavior it's reflected and we as doctors try to deal with it. Mental disability, mental impairment is real in a variety of ways and there's been so much misunderstanding. Advocates now try to make the point just because the doctors don't have an x-ray yet doesn't mean that mental impairment doesn't really happen. That's why I felt this metaphor of cancer of the mind was so useful. The, the, the mind, metaphorically speaking, can become broken or impaired in a variety of ways. Uh, old people, where, where they become demented. We, we may on x-rays nowadays see that there's certain atrophy of the brain, but before we had those tests, they were still becoming demented, and psychiatrists saw it by seeing changes in personality, changes in intellectual level, changes in functioning. To say that those people, when they got older, were now choosing to misbehave would be to miss the reality that mental impairment is real. That's the point I'm trying to get across by using that metaphor. Uh, Mr. McCann, uh, yesterday in this, uh, I don't know what you call these overlays or whatever it's called, uh, quoted this statement about many psychiatrists, however, believe that psychiatric information, you know what I'm talking about. The one about whether the volitional prong of the yeah. insanity uh, defense. And then, and then he brought in, because I, I asked him for the source, and it's been now marked as State Exhibit Number 29, and that was a uh, overlay was uh, two, four, six, seven uh, sentences out of, uh, or seven lines out of this document, that they, I think, yeah. uh, that is uh, 681 to seven pages uh, report. Uh, I'm going to ask you, is that shown to you so that you knew from whence it came that Mr. McCann gave it to me and that I in turn gave it to you, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, now that is a, uh, what is that thing uh, that you have in front of you? Are you familiar with that? Well, it, it's, uh, it says American Psychiatric Association statement on the insanity defense, and it's by the insanity defense work group and, and I am aware that there uh, is a group uh, of, uh, and, uh, appointed by the American Psychiatric Association uh, to review uh, the, the stance on the insanity defense. We, we all know that it's a very emotional uh, type of, of defense. Uh, people have talked about it for a long uh, time um, in this state.